Well, it isn't so much a trick, but you, you just have to force yourself to think only in today's numbers. Uh, you can't say, and you've probably seen this already, and I've seen it hundreds of times, you can't say rents are $2 today, uh, but two years from now, when I'm done, they're going to be $3. Uh, you know, how many times you know, have you seen sale packages where uh, the brokers show the rent kind of nicely rising at 5% a year, and they show the expenses as nice and flat. Uh, and so the, the deal gets more and more profitable as time goes by. That doesn't work. That's a good way to, to, to overpay. <laughs> if you just say, look, it's, it's 10,000 feet. It, it, today's rent is a, is a dollar a foot. So that's 120,000 a year. And I want to go to, well, let's do it at 10 cap. I can't pay more than a million two. You just have to stick with, with the current reality. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Placemaking Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to share this next conversation with all of you today. John McNellis is the co-founder of McNellis Partners located in Northern California, a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley and Hastings College of the Law. John practiced law until he co-founded McNellis Partners, a Northern California shopping center development firm in 1982. John frequently lectures on the topic of real estate development and has currently written two books on the subject as well. McNellis Partners has been building one project at a time, a reputation for fairness and thoughtful development. They take on a limited number of new projects, focusing their energy and enthusiasm primarily on building and redeveloping shopping centers, mixed-use projects, and office buildings. From the simply outdated to outright neglected, these properties often occupy a significant place in the communities, and they take the pride in renewing the productivity and importance. On this episode, we're going to discuss why some people fail to take the first steps into real estate development, common reasons some people don't succeed in commercial real estate, as well as busting some of the biggest myths in CRE as a whole. There's loads of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciate John for taking the time out of his busy schedule to discuss the topics of starting out in real estate development. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Appreciate it, Matt. Happy to be here, or virtually speaking. Virtually, right, right. It's an honor to have you on the show. You're a real estate developer, co-founder and principal of Magnolia's Partners, and then author, extraordinaire, entrepreneur. I kind of gave an intro before the show, but I, if you're good with it, I'm ready to jump right in. So what was your first job in real estate, and, and what did that look like? My first job in real estate was, I kind of fell into it. I, my first job was as a, a litigation lawyer with a, a fancy San Francisco law firm. Uh, 
uh, going back a long time. And I started out as a litigator, but almost instantly, you know, within, if not a week or a month, within several months, I figured out that litigation is nothing like it is on TV or in the movies. <laughs> I hated it. And uh, just by chance, my firm had a real estate department. And so then uh, I started begging the managing partner, saying, please let me become a business lawyer. I, I can't stand the, the paperwork and, you know, the fighting in courts and all that kind of crap. Uh, and gradually they let me shift over to the real estate department. So I was a real estate lawyer. And then as time went by, I, I became, I sort of specialized in representing the, the handful of developers that the firm represented. So that that's how I kind of, that was my entree into commercial real estate. Gotcha. Would you say that that background and and being a legal representative, do you think that helped you out going forward as you created your own, uh, founded your own firm? It it did. Um, you know, I, I've, I've written about this, but you know, I think a developer is is more or less like a, to use kind of a broad analogy, like the conductor of an orchestra. Uh, and almost no, and I, I know I have zero musical talent, but I understand that you don't start out as a conductor. You start out as a, a violinist, a pianist, a tuba, or whatever. Same thing with, with development. You start out with in one of the, um, the support roles. So law is great for learning uh, the contracts and the finances. And also if you're representing you know, big clients, what it's good for, Matt, is you get comfortable with big numbers. So if at that time I was, which was true, I, I was buying a, a duplex, say for $24,000. But meanwhile, in my day job, I'm papering contracts for 10 million. You just kind of start to get comfortable. You also learn as a lawyer, you learn the, the, the nuances of, of joint ventures. You know, what's a fair joint venture deal between the developer and the money, for example. But if you start out as a broker, that's a different instrument in the orchestra. You start out as a contractor, you start out as an architect, you always bring something to it. But then if you're going to be a developer, you've got to learn kind of what the whole orchestra does. And you, know, you say, okay, the architect needs to do this, this, and this. Uh, the mortgage broker needs to arrange the loans and so on. So yeah, they're all good. Uh, if I were, 21 and starting out and saying, gee, I want to be a broker, excuse me, a developer, I'd start out in brokerage. Uh, I wouldn't start out in law or, um, or contracting or others. I think brokerage is, is the most direct uh, link to becoming a successful developer. That makes sense. Did you have any inkling growing up that you wanted to, to do this or was <laughs> no. this just, no? no? No, you know, uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, it was Kodak, it was pictures. So if, if you said, hey, John, what's a developer? I would have said, oh, yeah, that's a guy that, that, that processes pictures. <laughs> I didn't know what a developer was until I, I was probably 25, until I was at this law firm. So I, I fell into it. Gotcha. So you started, you said you, you bought a duplex on the side while you were working at the law firm. Correct. You know, we read in the book that from there you kind of, Worked your way up, just buying incrementally larger deals until uh, until you've started to to get some some large deals and and brought in some extra partners. That's right. I went from a duplex to a fourplex to buying a fourplex and converting it into condominiums to buying 
say several buildings on a single lot and then doing um, this is like a lawyer development you know paper development uh, apartments and in, into condos there's no construction there mm -hmm. uh, buying one large lot with three properties and doing a lot split there's no construction there so it's like uh, but I knew the paper end of it because of uh, being a lawyer. I did not know the development end. But as time went by, I, I teamed up with an older client. A guy was about 15 years older who, who did know uh, the nuts and bolts of construction. And he wasn't gifted at raising money, which uh, if you're going to be a developer, you, you need to be able to sell. And so we teamed up first as lawyer and client and then as partners and I think we, I built my first big shopping center um, geez, in 82, so 38 years ago, and we still own it. Uh, but that I had to piggyback off of his uh, development expertise. Again, back to the um, the orchestra analogy. Right. <laughs> he was the woodwinds, and I didn't know about that, but I learned over time. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I, I think that's important that you found you said you found your your weaknesses and your strengths and you you were able to team up together and uh, kind of help you out so when you bought your initial duplex what was your thought process behind that was that just some extra income or did you think that was going to lead into to more and more you know i was never that far thinking i didn't have a strategic plan i, I just uh, you know maybe it's some hardwired genetic dna thing where you know owning real estate, you know, I'm Irish, it's a good thing to own rather than rent. Sure. And uh, no, it was just, okay, this sounds like fun. Uh, and I don't hold me to the exact numbers, but I think I paid around 25,000. I think I put up less than 2000. And then a year later, I just happened to catch a, a strong rising market. I sold it for nearly 60,000. So uh, never in my life since have I ever, you know, 2,000 becoming 30,000 is a hell of a, a, a return. Never mm -hmm. come close to that since. <laughs> anyway, that, maybe I was hooked at that point. I said, wow. And that 30,000 was about twice my annual salary at the time. I think I was making about 15,000 a year as a lawyer. Really? So I said, whoa, this is a lot easier and a lot more fun you know, than filling in blanks and contracts. This is, this is real, right? This is real, yeah. Um, I'm curious. So, was there a moment where you figured out that this would be your calling, real estate as a whole? Was it was it at that moment, or was there time afterwards that you, once you made that transition? You no, know, it was more like the boiling frog thing, you know, where it just it was gradual. So, uh, the the with the. 60,000 I had from the duplex, I, I bought a fourplex and that one also doubled. Uh, uh, and then suddenly I had $100,000. Uh, and then maybe I made another 100,000 when, when we converted the condominiums. Uh, but by the time I did that first shopping center deal, that was a $10 million deal then. So think of it as, I don't know, 30, 40 at, at this point. Uh, that was a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of like a four-dimensional, uh, I'll take that three-dimensional at least New York Times crossword puzzle you know trying to keep the land particularly when you don't have any money it's tricky you know you mm -hmm. got to tie up the land uh, you got to tie up in, in retail which is what I do neighborhood shopping centers you've got to get your anchor tenants lined up 
you know, enough of them to uh, be able to obtain the construction financing. Uh, you've got to sell the equity. So you've got, you're juggling multiple mm -hmm. balls in the air and when it goes together, it uh, works great. So I guess you could say I was from that point with that center and it turned out really well, uh, I was probably hooked by that. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 true. It's, that all goes into it. That's got to be tough. Is there anything you know looking back that you wish you would have known going into this? Yeah, well, there's so much more I know now. It, <laughs> anything specific? Uh, you know, it's it, it, let, let's face it, Matt. It's a difficult business. I think most people fail at it, uh, or at best they they break even. It, it's hard. Uh, and so each deal, you know, you learn a little bit, maybe, maybe you make money, maybe you don't, but you know, if, if you're meant to do it, you're constantly making mistakes and you're constantly course correcting saying, okay, there's a mistake I don't want to make again. Mm -hmm. I think the one mistake that people, and, and I certainly made starting out is thinking, oh my God, I've got to get this deal. This deal is the deal for me. I've got to do it, and they and they kind of get their anxiety wrapped up, <clears throat> or ramped up, and maybe they overpay. You know, maybe the brokers are, are the good ones are expert at kind of preying on your insecurities and saying, "Well, dude, you don't close on this. I got six other offers." Uh, and the thing to remember when you're starting out is that there's always going to be another deal. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to do any particular deal, and it. The mistake that everybody makes uh, pretty much every year or in the business is they overpay. Uh, and if you overpay for a property, you know, it's, it's game over on, you know, on day one, on, right? On day one. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly have done that in the past. And, and I've certainly worked deals that where we effectively gave all the development profit to the seller because we overpaid. So we worked for five years, put up a brand new building. Whoa, it's worth what we paid for it. Uh, that's particularly true today, uh, not for us so much, but you know, this downturn has, has taken the, the cream off the top and, and prices have dropped. And so a lot of guys, the multifamily was red hot here in the Bay Area, but uh, prices have dropped, uh, rents are down. So you could have spent the last five years uh, developing a piece of property and make nothing for it. Mm -hmm. You said, you know, you don't want to overpay. That's a given, but how do you how do you control those emotions personally? How do you come back to the numbers essentially? What is there any trick, or is it is it really just accountability and, and talking through uh, your decision? Well, it isn't so much a trick, but you just have to force yourself to think only in today's numbers. Uh, you can't say and. You've probably seen this already, and I've seen it hundreds of times. You can't say rents are two dollars today, uh, but two years from now, when I'm done, they're going to be three dollars. Uh, you know, how many times you know have you seen sale packages where uh, the brokers show the rent kind of nicely rising at five percent a year, and they show the expenses as nice and flat, uh, and so the, the deal gets more and more profitable as time goes by. That doesn't work. That's a good way to to overpay. <laughs> if you just say, "Look, it's it's ten thousand feet. It, it, today's rent is a is a dollar a foot, so that's one hundred twenty thousand a year, and I want to go to 
let's do it a 10 cap. I can't pay more than a million two. You just have to stick with with the current reality. Mm-hmm. And even if you had done that a year ago, you'd still be screwed today because none of us predicted the, the virus. And back to the point that sooner or later, everybody loses money in real estate. Mm-hmm. Because no matter how smart, no matter how careful you are, uh, forces way beyond your control. Uh, the, the financial tectonic plates shift on you and, and, and you're, you're screwed. So you've just got to be really careful. Yeah. I like that point that you made in the book. Well, obviously the main point is that, you know, you're going to lose money at some point, but the point being that you shouldn't jump way ahead and try to hit these bigger and bigger projects when, you know, eventually the next one might fail and that next one could be big enough to basically wipe out all of your. Right. uh, Yeah. Yeah, if you're too aggressive, too ambitious, and, and, uh, and I know I write about that. if you go from duplex to fourplex to to 32 units to 64 units, each deal is, is twice the size of the prior one. Sooner or later, uh, actually very quickly, you become the world's biggest developer, or uh, you go broke. And we almost did. Uh, you know, we went from I went from a $24,000 deal to uh, it was all in about 18 million within the space of uh, five or six years. And that $18 million deal failed. Uh, and it was a, a bumpy couple of years there uh, trying to pay everybody back. Wow. Was that your first large project there or the no. retail project? No. <laughs> yeah, no, if, if, if you flame out on your first project, then, then you're back to practicing law for work. <laughs> no, it, it's true. I mean, you which is why you really have to be cautious in your first two. You need to get a track record. It was probably our fourth or fifth or sixth project. The very first one, the one I mentioned, uh, it's actually in Healdsburg. We still own it. It's quite, it's quite successful. Uh, but if you're going to, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley, and, and the, uh, the metric or rule of thumb is uh, for the VC guys is, is they make money but it's a serious home run one out of 10 times, uh, you know, and, and, and they break even two or three times and then they lose a little bit of money and then they get wiped out on the others. It's the other way around in real estate. You, you've got to make money nine out of 10 times. And then, and if you do that and, and you're not um, going up on a kind of a logarithmic progression, then you'll be okay when you sooner or later, you know, uh, the, the code wipes you out. Uh, which, it, and I'm sure you probably know friends who've just been crushed, uh, young developers by the COVID. Mm-hmm. And anybody who was trying to bring an office building online uh, this year, uh, pretty much anywhere in the country is having enormous problems right now. Or if you were bringing a new hotel online, ouch. And perfectly smart guys, again, a tectonic shift on them. Right. Something unpredictable like that. It's. Uh... It's tough to watch that, but um, you were kind of surrounded by basically the lingo, the just everything real estate when you were working, uh, when you shifted into business law and you were surrounded by all these people, individuals, uh, real estate developers and everything that, that kind of helped you learn pretty fast, I'm sure, 
Yes, that's a good point. What? Yeah, I, I knew the lingo. I, I also, through all of the deals I was working as a lawyer, I met the bankers, I met the financial guys. Uh, so I had an entree into borrowing money. And again, I just because I was using other people's money as a lawyer, I got very comfortable talking about a million here, five million there, uh, which helped. Right. Yeah, that's that's huge. So how would you or what what kind of resources or ideas would you give someone that that maybe isn't surrounded by uh, as much influence uh, or um, wisdom in a real estate sort? What kind of resources would you tell somebody that they should go pursue? Well, you you read the book. What I pretty much tell everybody, and, and, and particularly those who aren't in that, if, if you're working for a very large developer or a, a large architecture firm, you know the high-end uh, commercial people, you can pick this stuff up. If you're not, uh, just going out and, and buying that mythical worst house in the best neighborhood and and just doing it on your own that's what i recommend to almost everybody uh, and also keeping your day job <laughs> uh and and just kind of gradually building up your net worth by you know maybe a house every year or two or a duplex or, or whatever so that that is, is kind of and all of the uh the skills that you need to succeed as as a large time big time commercial uh, developer you can acquire just doing houses it's the same stuff you just it's a zero or two less <laughs> you, you still have to find the property you still have to negotiate for it you still have to renovate it or tear it down and fix it up and finance it and do the accounting it's all there it's just simpler mm -hmm. and the thing i like about residential uh <laughs> putting the COVID aside and, and high-rise apartments at the moment residential for the most part has zero vacancy uh, and all of the other in, industrial does today, but that, that's an anomaly, but all of the other real estate trades have a uh, vacancy risk. But so resident small time residential is kind of like a training wheels deal. You know, it's a little bit safer. So you don't, you may not get 2000 a month in rent, but you'll get 1800 a month. Whereas you develop a, a little retail center, uh, you may not lease that space for, for two years. Instead of 2000, you'll get zero. So. No, that's uh, a good point. Yeah. I, I like to send people to, you know, if residential works for you, then you, you can move on, you know, you go from rookie ball to, to, to single A to double A and kind of work your way up, Yeah, you know, find out where you're comfortable. Yeah. Take the, take the training wheels off. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, yeah, and like you said, you want to do this fairly incrementally or else you could wipe out what you'd worked so hard for in one yep. deal. What is, a, what is a common myth that you see about uh, commercial real estate? You right asked now? me about that beforehand and I thought about it. The biggest myth uh, about commercial real estate is that it's passive. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and you see this... Uh, I love brokers and I'd be nowhere without them. But what brokers will try to sell people on every day of the week is, oh, buy this McDonald's, uh, this freestanding, or, or, or buy this little shop, or buy this. <laughs> it, it's a passive investment. There's no such thing as 
if you're a passive landowner, your property is circling the drain. You may not know it. Uh, you know, there's always, you know, we have a property management company, our, our own. There are issues every single day. Uh, you know, the roofs are, are slowly wearing out. The parking lot needs to be attended to. Uh, this whole idea that, you know, that that's a, the, the, the siren call for the guys who, who take my advice and they start out with a duplex, fourplex, 16 units, 32 units, 64 units, and they're small time and, you know, they're managing the residential and they know that residential is an enormous pain in the ass I mean, mm -hmm. to manage. You know, you need on-site property managers and, and there's always toilets clogging. Yeah, they're always, always issues. And you see those guys uh, say, okay, I want to shift over to commercial because I want a passive investment. Mistake. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Yeah. I, I, I see it often spun that way. It's like, you don't have to deal with toilets, right? It's. Yeah, no, you, all, <laughs> you always have to deal with your property. So why do you think people fail when they get into commercial real estate for the first time or why do they not even fail to take that first step? Maybe it's scary. Yeah. You know, the people, a lot of people, it's like, uh, uh, you know, getting off the, the, the ski lift and, and, and just kind of sliding over to the edge of, of some straight down shoot and looking down and say, Whoa, yeah, I'm not, I think I'll go the, the saddle and go the back way. I mean, it, it's scary taking, you know, signing a personal guarantee, uh, saying, Oh my God. And if, if you worry at night, if you say, I'm going to sign this guarantee for a million dollars, uh, and if things go wrong, I'll go broke. It, it, a lot of people just can't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you see a lot of people in the business who think they want to become developers and, and they, they sidle over to the edge of that, that uh, steep chute and, and then they, they back away. And then there are those who come to the edge of that chute and, and you know, who, who <laughs> can't keep their skis together and, and they, uh, they crash and burn. Right. Uh, if you could burn in snow, I guess not. But, <laughs> But it's hard. It's very tricky to be able to, on the one hand, accurately assess risk. You say, John, here's this great deal. And here are the, here's just how we're going to fix it up. Or just how we're going to double our money. And there are 10 or 12 risks associated with it. You know, parking lot failure. There's some title issues there. And maybe it's environmental. So a, a developer has to kind of say, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. That's a problem. This is a real problem. You know, the lease term is too short. We need to solve this, you know, before we, we go hard. So you need to kind of identify and calibrate the risk. One, and you need to do that accurately. And then you need to accept the risk and then, and say, all right, uh, I'm not worried about seven of these three, two of these I'll handle before closing. And one, because uh, is why I'm going to make the money. I'm going to accept after the closing, but I know I can fix it. So I'm going to take that risk. I'm going to sign that guarantee. I'm going to take Matt and all my other buddies at $50,000 each, and I'm going to make their money back for them. You know, it's, it, it's hard. Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's how it works. And I've heard this from other people that I've talked to, other developers. There's so much that goes into it 
and you don't always understand the return from something that you do. So some, if say you went uh, nine foot ceilings instead of eight foot ceilings in your, you know, in your multifamily project, you know, yeah, sure. It's going to cost more, but what is the return on that? I don't sure. know. You know, it's, it's, there's, it's almost four dimensional to where you have to pick choose and understand what are the impacts what are the implications and then what is my return it's it's difficult and i mean how do you other than being in the business for for so long how how do you weigh those risks internally yeah again if it's dealing with today's numbers on a property and, and saying and and the trick is to accurately calibrate the risk if I buy this old gas station as is, I'll get a 3% return because I'm, you know, I'm overpaying for it, its current use, but I'm getting a 3% return. If I'm lucky and I can convince the city, excuse me, to um, allow me to upzone this to residential, I, I can build 24 units and I'll make a 500% return. You know, it, a lot of it just comes from experience, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, they, they say any decent job worth having, it takes five years to get good at. Uh, and I think that's pretty much true, and whether lawyer, contractor, whatever. But it's probably uh, longer uh, as a developer, maybe seven or 10 years, because you've got to get burned a few times. You've got to say, oops, I can't do that rosy an assumption, or, you know, it's, it's no certainty that I'm going to get this property rezoned. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, how do I, uh, you know, when I look at a deal, I kind of like to see that if everything goes to hell in a handbasket, like we don't get the rezoning done, that we can sell it for a break even. You know, so, it, it, you know, and if you've been doing it for a while, you, you're kind of playing with the house's money and you say, okay, I'll risk a million here or two million there. Yeah. But my risk isn't so much the loss of the 2 million, it's the loss of two years worth of time. Uh, and, and big picture, you know, big point, all you really have is time. Uh, so you gotta be careful. Uh, if you spend 10 years working on deals that you break even on, well, you haven't gotten anywhere. So that's tricky too. Yeah, that's, that was a, a, a good point. Good chapter in the book, the recent book about the, the net to be ntm and uh a lot of times you know that that's very true people don't think about the time that it takes and what that actual return on the time is right and, uh, i i appreciated that chapter because like i said it's it's pretty common that people oh say i'm gonna make a million or, or whatever if this project goes well I'll make a million but you have to look uh look a little deeper at the numbers to understand what that truly means. And then also back calculate to uh, how much time you think it's going to take and, and what that return is on time. Right. And I stole that idea. A friend, Chris Kerr is at ULI, which if, if anybody's starting out with your listeners and they say, well, how do I get more involved in commercial real estate? Uh, great ideas. Just join your local ULI chapter and then work your way up to the national. But it was he who once said, well, what's the NTM? And I said, what? You know, net to me. Uh, and it is a great, you know, before you take the job, before you do the deal, 
run the numbers all the way down to, okay, Mac gets half, the other partner gets a quarter, the bank gets so much, you know, I, I spend two years and even though it starts out as 2 million, you know, the net to me is 50,000. Well, do I really want to do that? Uh, and too often people don't do that. And, they, and then they're disappointed with uh, whatever the, the net to them was. Right. I guess, what do you see as a common uh, stumbling block for people getting in? Is it is it paying too much? It seems like what we discussed is how people often fail starting out was just paying too much. Is there any other common uh, stumbling blocks that you see from developers just starting out? It, it, it requires a host of skills. And, and so some people starting out don't have the, you have to be able to sell. Uh, you've got to be able to, to sell when you're starting out. It's tricky because you've got to sit and let's assume you have no money. Okay. So, uh, so you're starting out. So you've, you've got to be able to uh, find a property, find a good deal, understand that it's a good deal. So, so you need, it's basic arithmetic, but you need to, to be pretty good at basic arithmetic. You've got to convince that seller uh, that, and, and let's say you're 25 years old and you look like you're 15, it's hard to convince sellers to uh, give you much time, right? Because you don't have any money. So you're doing that on the one hand and on the other, you're going to all your, your family and friends and saying, I found this deal for a million dollars. I need 300,000. If I can get 10 of you to put up 30,000 each, uh, I know it's going to be worth, we'll put in another 200,000 and it's going to be worth a million six and you'll all double your money and I'll make a hundred thousand dollars. You've got to do that at the same time. So you need to be able to sell. Uh, and, and selling is a lot easier if you have a good product. Uh, another mistake people make when they start out, they think that the money is the hard part. I don't think so. Uh, this is where a little, uh, experience and confidence comes along, but good deals are hard to find. So if you actually come across a good deal, uh, let's say you say, Hey, John, here's this neighborhood, every house in this neighborhood, the last two years has sold for average of a million dollars, this house, because there was a divorce and they hate each other and it's been neglected. We can sell, we can buy for 600. If we put in 200, it'll be just as good as the, you know, the million dollar places, you know, something basic, simple explanation. This is why, you know, we're getting a good deal because of, for whatever, you know, my brother-in-law's best friend knows the seller or something like that. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to be a brilliant salesman to, you know, to just sell a really great product. So I, I guess it all starts with a good deal, but you still have to be able to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, the money will find the, the deal, right? I mean, if it's if it's good enough. Yeah, and, and oh, the best way not to sell it is to put a, in a bunch of fees for yourself before the money gets repaid. Like you come to me and say, oh, this is a great deal, John, and I want a $200,000 fee for putting it together and I want you know 10% of the annual gross each year. And I can see that no matter what happens, you're gonna make half a million and I may or may not get my money back. No way. Uh, if you say, John, this is a great deal, you're going to get all your money back first, plus a 7% return before I make a penny. Then I say, okay, uh, 
at least this guy's, he may not be right. He may not be brilliant at it, but at least his interests are exactly in line with mine, much easier to sell. But that's why you have to keep your day job because if you do that, it's three or four years before you make any money as a developer. And again, tricky. Yeah. Yeah, it's a return of your capital, right? Right. You want to know, first off, when am I going to get my money back? Yeah, that's right. And then what is my return on that eventually? Yeah, that's a good point. It's how you structure that and sell that to make you successful, but yet you have to pay your dues when you're starting out, right? You can't you can't expect the world from your, your first deal or first, second deal. Right. And we, we talked about this earlier but you had a project that was 18 million you said and and you had issues with that was that would you say that was your most difficult project to to date that uh Uh, i'd say it was our biggest loser but i don't know if i don't know if it was the most difficult some of the successful ones were uh extraordinarily difficult they took lots of time years uh a good redevelopment project or, or, or a rezoning project can, in Northern California can take an incredible amount of time, five years, 10 years. We had one that took 18 years, start to finish, from the time we first saw it to the time it was successfully redeveloped. Uh, wow. Very, so it was a hard deal. Uh, you could lose money, on the other hand, like a guillotine really quickly. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's not so hard in terms of uh, time invested, but in terms of uh, a negative effect, it's pretty bad. Wow. That is a very long entitlement process. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, the entitlements were probably 12 or 15 years, but you know, then a couple of years to build it and everything else. Oh, okay. Uh, That's, that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> that was a long time. Oh, yeah, it's a long time. Wow. Uh, on this, this biggest loser that you mentioned, what you pound it on my loser. Okay. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm just curious. What what made it so? Okay, so a little background. In the 80s, uh, President Reagan uh, changed kind of one simple law. At, at that time, there were they were called savings and loans, and all savings and loans could do by charter was to make single family home loans, and it was a safe, quiet little backwater of, of the financial world. Uh, Reagan changed the law so that these savings and loans could do anything. Uh, you know, they, they took the handcuffs off, so to speak. The savings and loans went berserk. Uh, that shopping center that was $18 million, we actually, uh, my older partner, the guy 15 years older, had gone to business school with a guy in Texas who owned a savings and loan. Uh, and the guy in Texas called my partner and said, Bob, we want to get some money out the door. You know, we'd like to joint venture with you. Uh, they lent us about 103%, 103% of the closing costs. So we had zero money in the deal. Uh, we actually got some fees. And the, 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 this deal's shining moment was the day we closed. So uh, we had no money in the deal. They had, uh, And I think it was maybe an 80-20 deal. Uh, equity to the money, uh, and we and we got cash out of it, but uh, it was way too much leverage. And and let's say it was ten percent. Honestly, I don't recall the rate, but 
again, development deals take a long time. We encountered roadblocks. The, the meter was running on the, the money. And so that snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, ultimately we lost it uh, some years later. Mm. You know, so the short takeaway, too much debt. Uh, and we, we were lucky you know, to, to get out of the deal uh, without having to pay back anything. You know, it was, it was a, big, big, a big, big mess. Right. It sounds like it. So, and I like kind of that underlying theme of your book as well as, as not taking on too much leverage. It's in several chapters. You mentioned that you like to stay pretty lean with your group. Is that from that experience? Is that kind of what molded, uh, I guess, your, your outlook? Well, I, if it wasn't Warren Buffett, it should have been. But I think Warren Buffett said, "You, if you own real estate free and clear, you can't lose money. You know? I mean, it, 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 it's, that'd be pretty extraordinary if all you have to do is pay property taxes on a piece of property. So you're coming out of that uh, experience, what's called the $18 million loss. Yeah, we pivoted 100%. Uh, you know, or 180 degrees anyway, decided we'd rather own, and again, this is in the book, you know, my line is I'd rather own 100% of a million dollar gas station uh, than 1% of a $100 million high rise or, or shopping center. I mean, the numbers are the same, but you control your life. Uh, you, you don't have a big uh, equity partner. You don't have a lot of debt. And yeah, yeah, we did shift away from debt. Our portfolio today, probably is around 20 to 25 percent leveraged um, and we have a number of properties free and clear wow but you can't do that that, that takes 40 years <laughs> <laughs> right right you know if you're starting out with no money you have to have leverage and you have to have partners uh but the trick is to sell some of those properties pay off the debt pay off the partners and have enough money left over for yourself to go buy something with little debt and with fewer partners. And then eventually build it up, right? Eventually, yeah. Eventually, a couple, yeah. couple deals a year, uh, you know, starts to add up. <laughs> yeah. And you guys are doing about two to three still this? Is that what you typically do a year? Yeah, we typically do a couple a year. This mm -hmm. year, but I, was, <laughs> I have a younger partner that I'm doing some uh, res deals. Uh, and uh, we were looking at a triplex that we we're going to buy uh, yesterday. I was standing on the site mat. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I think I'm the Benjamin Button of commercial real estate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> here I am at essentially the end of my career doing, you know, the, the, the beginning stuff, right. fixing up a triplex, but uh, they're, they're fun. Yeah, I think we bought, uh, it actually be three res projects, little little but very expensive rest projects this year. Uh, haven't bought any shopping centers and working on, actually we have four uh, retail deals under construction, but those have been in the pipeline for years. Right. Uh, uh, but I'd, I'd say we average a couple of deals a year. Okay. Say I was to search uh, Wikipedia here, maybe in, I don't know, a hundred years, I wanted to look back at uh, your name or your 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 company's name what would be that legacy 
what would I find on there? What would describe you guys? Yeah, you know, uh, no just straight-up businessman is ever well-remembered. You know, it's a big deal. The guy was good at making money. Uh, the only way that the world's most successful business guys are, are, are well-remembered is by, you know, what they give back. You know, I, I had a, if you think of, of the... The Renaissance, the, the the Medici's, why are they famous? You know, because you know they supported the they supported uh, Da Vinci and Michelangelo and Bernini and so on. Carnegie, why is he well wrapped? You know, the guy was an absolute bastard pirate, right? <laughs> but he he's well remembered because right. of the libraries that he built across the country. Uh, you know, my hope would be to to be remembered. I, I think the book. I actually think the book is, is good. I, I think it uh, it's it's being read. Uh, it's very pleasing. I actually wrote it for guys your age, yeah. uh, you know, thirty ish uh, people who are already in the business. But what's happened with the book is is it's been picked up by universities across the country, from from Columbia to Georgetown to Berkeley. Uh, I'd like to be remembered for like just kind of giving back to the community, kind of explaining how it, how it can be done. That's it. That's awesome. And you're huge in the ULI, Urban Land Institute. The ULI, I, I plug it. it, it it's great. Uh, I have, you know, lifelong friendships uh, as a result of the ULI. And, you know, you can kind of warp speed your, your learning process by going to ULI and listening to other guys talk about, you know, the deals they've done, the mistakes they've made. A lot of what's in that book, you know, I learned at the ULI. Uh, and anyway, I, I can't recommend that enough. Yeah. And, it, and I'm guessing that's one way you like to give back because you're, you're uh, regularly invited to speak there as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I guess so. <laughs> awesome well i don't want to take up too much more of your time but if you could for everybody out there i'm gonna i'm gonna post some links to obviously your book and uh your Thanks, company's website it. but is there any other uh things you would like to to tell people where to find you or where they can get learn more about uh what you do no but you know just I guess you've watched some of those. I like to end my talks with the thought that anybody born in America is, is it, by definition, is in the top 4%. You know, there's 350 million of us and 7 billion people. So you're already so far ahead of the pack that uh, the thing that, that strikes me is that, yes, we've done really well, but we were in the right spot by luck, Northern California or California at the right time, you know, late seventies through now. So it, it, it was a great trajectory, you know, all this growth. There's a lot of luck involved uh, in, in life, in a business. You know, you can be as careful, you need to be really careful, but you also need to be a bit, a little bit lucky. And I was a lot lucky. And so what I, giving back just, you know, with your time, with a little bit of money, you know, when you can afford it is, is I, if you want to be well remembered, you give back. That's the way to do it. Okay. Can I say, awesome. thank you very much, Matt. Take Thanks, care. Sean. I appreciate it.